We want to uh, welcome you this morning, whether you're a long-term part of the family around here at Fullerton Free, or maybe you're joining us for the first time. No matter what, we're really excited that you're with us and uh, would want to remind you that this very same service uh, that we're broadcasting in the mornings, uh, we actually are doing live up on the roof of our parking garage on Sunday nights at 6.30. And so you're welcome uh, if you are ever interested and you feel safe to do so, you're always welcome to come and join us for that as well if you'd rather not live stream but rather be in person. Also, kids, if you're at home and you're live streaming this right now or you're watching it online, I want to remind you that now's a great time for you to go and to watch... uh, the, the Kids Connect that Mr. Matt and Miss Nikki have produced uh, every week. Our kids ministry here at Fullerton Free is producing a video called Kids Connect where we're studying the very same text with kids uh, out of James that we're going to be studying as adults. So this is a chance for you to grab your iPhone or your laptop or a, maybe a Roku in another room or whatever and play, uh, play that Kids Connect and then come back and join us at the end of the service uh, when we'll be uh, singing the praises of God some more and taking communion together and whatever. So kids, you're dismissed to go and watch that Kids Connect video now if you want. For everybody else, I would love to uh, just invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 5 if you haven't done so already. Maybe you've got one of our James journals and you've got that connected. Uh, maybe it's already open in front of you. But this is our last Uh, This is our last week in our study of the book of James. We've been working through it verse by verse by verse, and we're finishing the book of James this morning. So if you're just joining us today, you're going to want to go back and listen to those other messages just to kind of get caught up, uh, because so much of this happens uh, in in relation to the things that have come before it. In fact, as we come to this last section of James chapter 5... Uh, He's essentially reiterating what he already said at the beginning of the book. If you remember all the way back in James chapter 1, his encouragement there was, hey, in the midst of the trials that you're facing, remain steadfast, right? Persevere in the midst of it because you know that God is working, that he will glorify himself in you. And he says in that first chapter, if you lack wisdom... Pray and ask God, but don't be double-minded because the person who's double-minded won't receive anything from the Lord. So at the very beginning of the book, he was encouraging us to remain steadfast, to persevere, and in the midst of that perseverance, to pray and communicate with God. He will essentially say the same things here in chapter 5. In fact, if you were part of our study last week, as, uh, as Jeff sort of laid that out, the, the call there was to steadfastness, to perseverance, to patience, in light of the fact that there are things that you and I cannot do, that only God can do, only in his time. And so like the farmer, and like the prophet, and like Job, as it said last week, we have to be patient. We have to wait upon God, and not fall back on our own strength, not fall back on our own striving, not let ourselves get frustrated or discouraged, but persevere. And in the space that's created with perseverance, so when we abandon our own strivings and when we abandon our own sort of machinations, when we are no longer trying to manipulate the people that work for us, as it's talked about in James, when we're no longer tearing people down with our words, we're no longer dividing in our frustration, when we rest in the sovereignty of God, it actually opens up all kinds of space for us In our lives, because no longer are we fighting and no longer are we striving and no longer are we trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Well, what do we do with all that time? If we're not trying to manhandle our lives as best we can, well, the answer that James gives us here is as you're persevering and as you're being steadfast, pray. So there's been this flow of of thought in the whole book. He calls us to live a life of demonstrable faith. Early in James 1, he says, be doers of the word. Do the things that God has called you to do. Don't just be hearers, but live it out. The things that you believe internally should be made manifest on the outside. So that, as he says in James 2, uh, there is a sense in which you can claim to have faith, but you'll prove it by the things that you do. 
along those lines, throughout the course of this book, he's called us to things like impartiality, demonstrable faith lived out in our impartiality with our brothers and sisters. He's called us to controlled speech, to unity, to the wisdom that is from above. He's called us to peace among other people. He's called us to a dependence upon God, and he's called us to patience, as we looked at last week. Now, he says we should pray. So we come to verse 13 as he's wrapping up his thoughts. Verse 13 of James chapter 5, here's what he says. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing sing praise. Now, that might at first seem like two very specific things, but he's not trying to be specific. In fact, he's trying to do the exact opposite. He's trying to be as broad as humanly possible about human experience. He says, are you suffering? And notice here he says too, is anyone among you? So he's again, he's talking about Christians. He's talking about the brotherhood uh, of Jewish believers who were dispersed, as he talked about in James 1. He says, are any of you who are followers of Christ suffering? Well, the answer is at any given moment, yeah, all of us are, right? Everybody does in different times and different periods. There are moments of uh, mental suffering. There are moments of physical suffering. We know in, in specific that the people he was writing to were suffering persecution and trial because of their belief in Jesus, not only from the secular authority, but also from Jewish people, their own family members who would cast them out because of their proclaimed faith in Christ. But on a more broad scale, he's saying, is anyone suffering? Well, what you do in the midst of suffering is not feel sorry for yourself, not try, not try and blame other people, not find some sort of a scapegoat, but instead in the midst of the suffering you face, talk to God about it. He says, is anyone suffering? Well, your answer, the response to suffering is communicate with God. Likewise, he says, is anyone among you cheerful? Is anyone cheerful? Anybody experiencing joy? Anyone experiencing peace? Anyone got this this cheer that's bursting forth in them? Well, your answer, much like the answer to suffering is what? Sing praise, he says. Well, the idea of singing praise is not just have a joyful song come out of your heart, but what? Communicate gratitude to God. There's probably a good little side note for us that when we gather together to sing the praise of God on a Sunday morning like this, We're not doing it to entertain, right? None of the musicians that have prepared and worked hard throughout these weeks to put these songs forth, none of them are doing it to to please your ear or to, uh, you know, captivate you with their musicianship. Everything we do when we sing the praises of God is about worship. It's about honoring the one who's given us life and breath. Everything we have comes from him. And so sometimes when we get sort of bogged down in the nitty gritty of, well, I don't like this keyboard or I don't like those drums or I don't like this or that, we're missing the point. It's never been about pleasing ourselves. The praise of God through song is about his glory and his honor. But back to James, what he says is is essentially he's covering the full range of human emotion from the deepest valley of suffering to the highest mountaintop of joy and cheerfulness. He says, it doesn't matter where you are on that spectrum because the reality is, All of us are going to be on the mountaintop some days and in the valley other days. We're going to face difficulty and suffering and grief and sorrow. Maybe even in the same day that we experience cheer and joy and happiness. What he's saying is no matter where you are in the spectrum of human experience, no matter who you are or what you're facing in this particular moment, there is an occasion to communicate with God that whether you're grief-stricken or whether you're bouncing with joy... Speak to God. Communicate with God. It's not unlike the the things we read in Ephesians where it says on all occasion to pray in every way in the Spirit. Or the passage that we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, a very famous passage that says pray without ceasing. You know, and we if you if you think of prayer only in terms of like 
Put your hands together. Say, dear Jesus, close your eyes. Man, don't do that on the freeway. Don't do that. You know, you can't do that without ceasing. But what James is advocating for is in the space that is created by patient endurance or steadfastness, you've got all this time where you used to be striving, where you used to be making excuses, where you used to be dividing, where you used to be shaking your fist at the sky, maybe. Instead of those things you used to do, in that patient endurance that is fitting of demonstrable faith, talk to God. Talk to God about your sorrow and your suffering. Or if you're experiencing joy, sing to God. It it might help for you to think of it in terms of I mean, it's very similar to the way I think about donuts, right? What he's talking about here with prayer is the way I think about donuts. Yeah, you know, is it your birthday? That's a good opportunity to have donuts. Did you just lose your job? That's a great opportunity to go and get yourself a donut, right? Are you, uh, did the air conditioning go out in your house and you're hot and sweaty? You know what you need? A donut. Does the air conditioning work awesome in your house? Never work better? You feel very comfortable as you're watching the live stream? You know what would probably make it even better? A donut, right? A donut is fitting in all occasions. So think about that. That's exactly what he's saying. He's not, he's not saying anything about donuts. But for me, there isn't a circumstance in which I can't see that a donut would make the situation even better, right? The thing is true about prayer. And not only that, not only do we have this ability to have constant communication with God, no matter whether we're in the depths of despair or the mountaintops of cheerfulness and joy, not only do we have the availability to talk to God, but that kind of ceaseless prayer, the kind of prayer he's advocating for here, it affirms that we trust and rest in God's will. It affirms that I'm not dependent upon myself or upon anybody else for my joy or my peace or my healing That I'm dependent solely and wholly upon God. When we pray in all circumstances, we're articulating the fact that we believe God's will is good. Even in our suffering. Even in our sorrow. Even in our grief. Even in the circumstances we don't understand. When we pray to God in the midst of difficulty, we're affirming that we believe we serve a good God who hears us. Who wants to hear us. Who is ready and available to intercede for us, right? It affirms that God's will is good. It affirms that we believe he is sovereign and that even the suffering we're facing is under his control, that the joy or the sorrow, either one, is his to dictate. And it affirms the fact that we are submitted to that, that we've turned loose of the control of our lives, that we have died to ourselves and we are living a life of surrender and submissions, of patient steadfastness, if you will, that says, God, I'm suffering. I need you because I can't fix it. God, I am joyful. And it's not because I'm great at my job or because I saved up enough money or because I live in a great state or whatever. I'm cheerful because you are God and you have given me joy. Everything I know and everything I experience is from you, whether it's in the pits of despair or the mountaintops of joy, right? You see, so he says in all circumstances, is anyone suffering? Pray. Is anyone cheerful? Pray. Sing praises to God. He's saying that in every circumstance, we should come and acknowledge the goodness of God's will, recognize that he is sovereign, and show ourselves submitted to him. It's an alignment with him, an alignment with God. That's the kind of prayer he's calling to. But it isn't just an individual thing. So he does say individually, is anyone suffering? Is anyone cheerful? But then he broadens it out to our community. Look at what he does in the next couple of verses. And I'll say, before we get into 14 through 16, That this is a very, very difficult text. This is a problematic text. It's a text that different people have different views on. And in fact, lots of division has been created because of the way people read the text. But it's actually a lot more simple than it seems. Let's just read it together. First, he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. 
Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise, no matter where you're at. And then 14, he says this. Is anyone among you sick? And that word that's translated sick essentially means feeble or weak. We're talking about someone who is in difficult circumstances. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Okay, this is really interesting. There's a couple of things I want you to see before we get to the parts that are complicated. The first thing I want you to see is that James here affirms the role of elders in a congregation. He affirms the the value and um, the calling of elders to pray for the sick. There's this beautiful picture of community here where when someone is weak and someone is feeble, it's because he calls the elders to himself, it kind of seems like this person may not even be able... To, to, to move around, like he might be in a sick bed someplace, right? And he calls the elders to him, and those elders pray over him. That positional thing is important, not, not as a hierarchy, but what it's saying is, this person's probably lying down. It's very literal, right? That the person's probably not able to stand, and so the elders come and they pray over him in faith, anointing him with oil. Let me say for the record that that anointing oil is not magic oil. It's not consecrated oil. It's not some special thing you have to buy at a Christian gift shop or whatever. When it's talking about oil there, the picture is firstly about medicine, right? In the first century, oil was a thing that they used to treat the wounds of people, right? Think about the story of the Good Samaritan. When the Good Samaritan finally comes along and picks up the man who's been beaten on the side of the road, what he treats that man's wounds with is oil, right? Oil was a medicinal cure. So part of what he's saying here is that the elders come and they both pray over him, but they also encourage him uh, with, with like regular medicinal treatment. But more importantly than that, oil throughout the Old Testament is used for consecration. It's used for the setting apart of, of a particular person, like in the point of appointing David to eventually be king. He's anointed with oil. What's that? It's a, it's a set-apartness for God's particular use. All throughout the Bible, the anointing with oil is uh, indicative of setting apart someone for God's particular purposes. And it's also worth noting that Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit anointing him as well. The Holy Spirit is upon me. I've been anointed, Jesus says. So there's a connection here, not only with oil being medicinal, but also with it being about consecration and alignment with the work of the Holy Spirit. That's all this oil is. But let me tell you what, it's not special oil. This is an oil that's been kept in a holy vat in a crypt somewhere. Uh, Anybody who tries to make it more special than it is, note here that the healing that happens doesn't happen because of the oil. This could be Wesson oil for all I care, right? It's symbolic, right? It's not magic. It's symbolic. It's meant to be symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit, the consecration of that individual, and it's, it's meant to include the fact that there are just some physical things we can do to ease the suffering of people who are hurt, right? So it says here, this sick person will call the elders. The elders will come and pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Note here too, that there's both a physical and a spiritual dimension. That it isn't just that he'll be healed from his infirmity or from his sickness, but also if he's committed sins, those sins will be forgiven. James recognizes that while we would absolutely affirm that the totality of scripture does not say that all physical illness is the result of sin. It simply doesn't. Remember our study in John, uh, in John chapter 9, right? 
when they come across the man who's born blind and the disciples look at Jesus in the first three verses of John 9. They look at Jesus and they go, who sinned, right? The blind man or his parents? Which one of them was the wicked one? Jesus goes, neither. It was neither of them. This happened so that God could be glorified in this miracle. So we want to affirm with scripture and with Jesus, right? That all sickness does not come from sin. It doesn't all come from some sort of wickedness within. But we must also affirm that sin does sometimes create sickness, right? There are places like in John 5, uh, when Jesus heals the man who has been uh, unable to walk for 38 years. Remember that Jesus comes back to him and says, stop sinning lest something else worse happens to you. There is the implication in Jesus' words there. There's the implication in what Paul says when he's talking about not taking communion in an unworthy way because many are sick and have died. There's a sense in which sometimes internal wickedness or sin can produce physical illness. So what he's saying here in James is, in the moment where someone is so sick that they literally can't get out of bed, they call the elders to them, and that's not only an opportunity for physical healing, but it is also a time for searching the soul. It's also a time, any time we're sick, it doesn't matter if you have a flu or if you, if you have cancer, it doesn't matter what kind of illness you're dealing with, there is an opportunity for you to do a spiritual inventory. To look into your own life and say, is this happening because of the result of my sin or because of my wickedness? There are times where physical ailments are a direct result of sin. And in those cases, what he's saying here is when the elders come, there's not only the opportunity to have the sickness healed, but there's the opportunity to confess that sin. And in fact, he'll go on to say that in the broader community of the Christian family, of the Fullerton Free family, for instance, there is great value in ongoing confession of our sin, right? Look at what he says in, um, look at what he says in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So he's saying here, if someone's sick, they call for the elders. The elders come and pray in faith, anoint him with oil, and he will be saved and raised up. Uh, And if he has sin, it, it will be forgiven, right? If he finds that some of this sickness is a result of his own sinfulness, that can, that, that will be forgiven by Christ in that moment as it's confessed, right? In that confession. And there is a call for us in an ongoing way to simply be a community of openness and honesty. This is not advocating for, you know, every time you meet somebody, I walk up to Brad and go, hey, let me tell you all the bad things I did this week. It's not saying we have to hang out our dirty laundry or that every conversation we have with one another has to be, you know, begin with us sort of laying out our most heinous sin. What it is saying is that we want to be the kind of community where we can go to those that we have wronged, right? Those that we have done wrong. And we can say, hey, I got to tell you, the thing I said to you last week or the thing I said to you 10 minutes ago, it was prideful or it was greedy or it was selfish or it was hateful or whatever, that we can confess these sins and that when we confess them one to another, when we're open and honest about our failings, what are we talking about? We're talking about humble solidarity in our brokenness. That should sound true for those of you who are in the Fullerton Free family. A humble solidarity in our brokenness when we're open and honest about the fact that we've sinned with one another and towards one another. That that's not, that's not greeted with uh, anger or resentment or revenge or hate. That it's greeted when the other person says, I forgive you, let's pray together. And then what happens? The relationship is restored. The relationship is reconciled. All throughout the book of James, James has talked again and again about the potential for division among the body. That that's the enemy's goal. His goal is to divide us. And so in those moments where we look into our own lives, either in sickness or in health, and we recognize that our sin is dividing us, he says, this is why it's valuable to come to one another and go, I blew it. 
I was a knucklehead. I said something stupid. I wish I hadn't said I'm such an idiot sometimes. Will you forgive me, right? And allow that brother or allow that sister to go, hey, we're family. We all do stupid stuff. We're good. Pray together, right? In community. And what? The relationship is healed. The sin is as if it never occurred. It's restored. But it's, a, it's when we have a community where we can't confess our sin, where we can't own up to our own brokenness, that division grows and grows and grows. Unforgiveness grows and grows and grows. And disharmony and brokenness is extended and sort of creeps all throughout. So notice here, there's a spiritual dimension. There's a physical dimension. He says, if the sick person is sick, they call the elders and they come. By the way, we as elders at Fullerton Free, we do this fairly regularly. Since I've been here in the last three years, there've been multiple times where we've had the opportunity to gather around someone who is sick and to pray over them and to anoint them with oil. It's a beautiful opportunity to pray over the sick. This is something we still do. If you're there today and you're watching this or you're hearing it and you're dealing with sickness or infirmity and you're at your wit's end and you have the opportunity to reach out to the elders, we would love to come and pray with and for you. That is one of the roles of an elder. This isn't something that was just for the New Testament church. It's not something that was just something the apostles did. Note here, it doesn't say call for the apostles. It doesn't say call for the healers. It doesn't say call for the people with special healing gifts. It says what? Call for the elders. Those are the leaders in the church. Every church has elders, right? And those people will come and pray. But here's here's where it gets a little bit tricky. Look at what it says in, in 15. 14 says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That in the name of the Lord is important. Verse 15, here we go. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, in one sense, in the broad sort of uh, redemptive work of Christ's sense, we recognize that everyone who comes to the Lord in faith, right, who comes to Jesus and says, will you rescue me from sin and death, is saved by the grace of God through his death and resurrection. So there is a, if you step way back, there is a broad overarching sense in which every person among us who has put their faith in Christ will be saved and raised up on the last day, right? We get that. But that isn't what he's talking about here. Not, not specifically. I think that's included in what he's saying, but he's talking about specific moments where a sick person who can't get out of bed calls the elders and the elders pray over him and anoint him with oil and he gets up. It's talking about physical healing. Well, here's, here's where this thing gets real complicated then. I can't ask you to raise your hands because you're, I can't see you. But if I were to ask you to raise your hands, do you believe that? Is that true? I, I would guess that probably, I mean, I don't know, I would guess that probably 90% of people who read that go, well, you know, you have to make some sort of excuse for why it doesn't work. Or you have to justify it in your own mind. You have to excuse, why? Because I'll be honest with you, I just told you a second ago that uh, over the last three years, we've prayed for several people who've asked for the elders to come and pray over them and anoint them with oil for healing. I'll tell you that in a couple of those cases, healing has occurred. In a couple of those cases, the people are in heaven now. Well, what is that? Is, is it that the elders didn't have enough faith? Gosh, should we be worried about the... Oh, is it that the person who was sick didn't have enough faith? Notice here, it says nothing about the faith of the sick person. It only talks about the prayer, which the elders were doing. So is that a lack of faith? Is it that the elders don't have a certain spiritual gift they need to have? What in the world is going on? Because it says as clearly as... I mean, you have to do all kinds of tricky work to ignore that it says very plainly, are you sick? Call the elders. They'll pray. They'll anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord and the Lord will raise you up. What do you do with that? 
I think we have a hard time with a text like this, and there are all kinds of people who do all kinds of gymnastics to dance around it because that hasn't been their practice. It hasn't been their experience. They have not seen this happen on a regular basis. And if you're like me, you've been in a circle with godly elders who are faithfully praying for a sick person who goes on to get sicker or sometimes goes on to die. Well, what happened to the promise of this text? Well, James helps us. He gives us clarity because you have to understand essentially what the prayer of faith is. You see that in 15? The prayer of faith. The prayer of faith is the key. There's a particular thing that happens here, and it's, we're helped, number one, by what he says at the end of 16. Famous part of James chapter 5. James 5.16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person, person has great power as it is working. Well, in those cases uh, where we're trying to figure out, well, why didn't this person get healed? Or why hasn't this person gotten up from their sickbed and walked? We have to look at what he says about this kind of prayer of faith and that it's a powerful prayer that happens in the life of a righteous person. Well, let let me explain to you uh, that you and I aren't righteous, right? We, We in and of ourselves are not right. In fact, there is only one righteous person. So when it says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective or as powerful as it is working, as it says in the ESV, there's only one righteous man and that righteous one is Jesus. He's the only one who's righteous. Now, if you're at home going, oh, I'm getting nervous about what he said because we have been given the righteousness of Christ that's been placed on us, all of that is true, right? If you're new to the church, the idea here is that when we humbly come before God, when we submit to him in faith, when we put our trust in him, when we confess our sin and cry out to him, we are redeemed. We are raised from the dead like Christ by his grace. His death and resurrection is extended to us and we are saved from death and sin. And the righteousness of Christ is placed on us. So we can't effectively say that those who are in Christ have the righteousness of Christ. Paul will talk about that in the Philippians. He says, I don't don't want any righteousness of my own, but I want to be found in Christ with the righteousness that comes from him, right? So what's happening here when it says the, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective or powerful as it is working. The idea there is that that kind of prayer, that prayer of faith is only the prayer that is aligned with Christ, And in accordance with the purpose and the will of Christ, the heart and the character of Christ. It's only in our in Christness that our prayer has power because he is the only righteousness one. He's the only righteous one. And our righteousness is solely due to our association with him and him giving us that righteousness by grace. Fortunately, James gives us an example of how this works. He talks to us about Elijah. Let's read on together. James 5. After he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working... He says this in verse 17. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. He talks about Elijah. By the way, if you want to read that story, you can find it in 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19. That's a great, that'd be a great sort of homework assignment for you this afternoon. The story of Elijah begins in 1 Kings 17 with God coming to Elijah and calling him to go to the wicked king Ahab and saying to Ahab, except by my word, it is not going to rain for three years. Elijah prays and the rain dries up. Now, if you're like me, you look at that and go, oh, well, great. It's nice to know that the prayers of Elijah work, but I'm no Elijah, right? I'm not a powerful Old Testament prophet who can call down fire from heaven and whatever. Well, 
I think James kind of knows you're going to default to that, right? He knows that we're going to go, well, I'm no Elijah. Look at what he says about Elijah. We just read it. He says, Elijah, what? Was a man with a nature like ours. What's he saying? It wasn't anything special about Elijah. It wasn't that Elijah had some special thing. It wasn't that he had some special, powerful prayer that nobody else can have. He's saying, no, he had the nature like you have. So if you're tempted to go, well, that only works for pastors, or it only works for shepherds, or it only works for prophets, it only works for apostles. No, he's saying, no, no, this guy had a nature just like yours. And he prayed that the rain would stop, and he prayed that, and, and it stopped, and he prayed that the rain would start, and it started. So that's what we're talking about. The prayer of a righteous man is effectual. Here's what you have to know about Elijah. Elijah didn't have any special power in and of himself, but what Elijah prayed when he prayed that the rain would stop was in alignment with something that God had already promised. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy 28, 24, and you don't have to turn there, we'll put it on the screens as well, but in the midst of God articulating to his people what his covenant with them would be like and the consequences to their failure in that covenant This is what God says as a consequence of failure for his people. In Deuteronomy 28, 24, it says, The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. In 1 Kings 17, when Elijah prays that the rain will stop, what he prays is that God would simply keep the promise he'd already made. Now, what's important here is that Elijah knew what God had said. Elijah had studied his scroll or he'd paid attention to his leaders. He'd learned the covenant of God and what, what the pros and cons were, right? He understood what the, what the penalty was for disobedience. It tells us in 1 Kings 16 that Ahab was a more wicked king than any king that came before him. That under his rule, there was all kinds of disobedience before God. So when Elijah steps up and says to him, hey, the rain's not going to happen anymore, what's he doing? He's essentially praying in alignment with the thing that God had already said. There's a couple of things this challenges us in. The first one is, if you want to pray the prayer of a righteous man that is powerful and effective, in alignment with Christ, if you don't want to be double-minded, and remember, James has talked about that as well. Remember in James chapter 1, in James chapter 1, verses uh, 6 through 8, talking about prayer, it says, let him ask in faith, With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Well, why would you have any doubt about things that God had already promised? If God has promised it, then he will do it. It's just us reminding him, not even reminding him because he never forgets, but it's us re-articulating to God, God, you said this, will you do it? There's no room for double-mindedness and there's no doubt unless you have doubt in the fact that God keeps his promises. But my point here in saying this and understanding the work of Elijah is that he knew his scripture. He knew God's word. There's a reason why in this church we're endeavoring to study the books of the Bible. We're working through God's word. We work through it verse by verse systematically. Why? We want to know the promises of God. One of the great benefits of knowing the promises of God is it gives you the ability to pray in alignment with him. But if you do not know what God has said, you cannot possibly pray without doubt. You have to pray wondering like, does God want this? Does God not want that? Is this in alignment with God? Would God be pleased? Is God, listen, studying God's word and being rooted in God's word is how Elijah was able to do the things that he did in prayer. And so must we be people of God's word. 
So must we be dedicated. And I'm not just saying tune in at 9.19 and 11.11 on a Sunday. I'm saying you, in your own time, grab your Bible, read it, study it, put it in your heart. You don't need me, right? We have to be people of his word so that we can be a righteous person whose prayer is powerful and effective as it's working. Why? Because that righteousness is all about alignment. How is it that the elders can pray over someone and they are saved from their sickness and, and raised from their sickbed? It has to do with alignment with the stated purpose and promise of God. Now, let me just give you a little bit of an illustration here for, so you get it. Uh, there are times in my family where I, uh, where, where I will say to my kids, hey, here's the thing. I got several things I'd like to see get done this week, right? I want you to, I'd like you to sort all the laundry. I'd like you to, uh, I'd like you to go out and clean the garage. I want it to be swept. I want it to be reorganized. I want all the trash to be thrown away. I'd like to have the trash cans taken out to the front yard and washed out. Um, I'd also like you to clean your rooms and throw away all the trash that you've tucked under your bed, right? I got all these things I want you to do. And if you do the things I've asked you to do, then on Saturday morning, we're going to sleep in a little bit. And after we get up, I'm going to buy Chick-fil-A breakfast for everybody, right? I make a promise to my family that if they will obey, there will be a reward. And sometimes in the course of the week, I forget that I make the promise, right? I'm just trying to motivate them. But the kids will come back to me on Saturday and they'll go, hey, dad, You told us if we did these things, you would buy Chick-fil-A. And you know what? When they reiterate to me the thing that I said, you know what I do? I keep my word. I buy the breakfast. There is a part of this in understanding the prayer of faith and this alignment with Christ. In James 4, he says, you ask for things and you don't receive them because you ask with selfish hearts, right? That's that same double-mindedness. There's a, there's a thing here in prayer where we're able to come alongside our friends who are sick, both in their suffering and in their cheer, and we're able to pray to God and say, remember what he said. Remember us, O God. Keep your promises. There are certain things we can pray, and God will answer them every time if we pray in faith. You, you want to pray that God will glorify himself? in the life of your brothers and sisters, he will never say no to that prayer. You want to pray that God will open up opportunities for you to be an ambassador of love and hope and peace and truth in your neighborhood. He will never say no to that prayer. You want to pray that God will expand your understanding of who he is and reveal himself to you in deeper and more meaningful ways. He will never say no to that prayer. Why? Because he's promised that those are the things he wants for you. When my kids come to me and they say, dad, you promised to buy us Chick-fil-A. I always do it because I promise. But there are other times where my kids come to me on Saturday and it's kind of a known deal that I like the Chick-fil-A breakfast, right? I, I, won't, I won't lie about that. The promise is a little self-serving. I like the Chick-fil-A breakfast. I like the, the bagel one. You know what I'm talking about? No cheese. None of the weird yellow cheese. Forget that. But I like, the, I like the bagel one. And my kids can come to me even on a week when I haven't made the promise. There are times where my kids on a Saturday morning will go, oh, dad, you know what sounds so good today? That Chick-fil-A breakfast. Don't you think that Chick-fil-A sounds pretty? Dad, you like the Chick-fil-A breakfast, right? And there are moments, even though I haven't explicitly promised it, that they come alongside in alignment with my heart and my desire. And I grant their request because it is aligned with something I want anyway. There are moments in our lives as followers of Christ when we come alongside the Father and he hasn't said anything specific. So for instance... I'm in the process right now of praying for my mother who's sick. God hasn't said anything specific to me about her. So what I can pray, number one of the promises that I know are true, I can pray that God will bless her and give her peace. I can pray that God will make himself known to her, that he'll surround her with friends and family that will love her well in a time of sickness. And I can also come to God and say, God, 
You haven't said anything explicit to me, but I know who you are. I know how you love my mom. I know how you love me. I know how you love to show yourself strong in the healing of your people. Will you heal my mother? I can ask him to do things that align with who I know he is. I can ask him to do things that align. Now, if my kids come to me on a Saturday morning and they say, hey, dad, you know what sounds really good? Wendy's. Guess what? No chance. I'm never, ever going to do that because as we've talked about many times over the last three years, my heart is not aligned with Wendy's. I don't want Wendy's. I'm not interested in it. I don't want to try their new breakfast. I don't care anything about Wendy's. If my kids come to me on a Saturday morning and they try and get me to buy Wendy's breakfast, that will be a no every time. When we go before God and we say, hey God, you know what I'd really like? I'd really like to make more money. You know what, God? I'd really like to have more Instagram followers. You know what? I wish these people who were always in my face would shut up. I wish this person over here would die or whatever. When we go to God with things that are absolutely uncharacteristic of his heart, you should never be surprised that those prayers go unanswered. Or if they go answered, they go, they go rebuked, right? We can come alongside the heart of God and we can pray. When the elders gather and anoint the head with oil of a sick person in our congregation, as I've done many times in this church, we seldom have the, the, the word from God that says, I will absolutely heal this person of their infirmity. I've read stories about pastors who've heard that sort of thing, who've heard it. God can do that. He can reveal to us in advance, I am going to heal this person of their sickness. And when he does it, praise God for his clarity. But in my experience and in my life, I've never had God tell me in advance that he was going to answer a prayer like that. I think he can, and he may, maybe he'll do that this week, right? But in the times when he hasn't clearly articulated a promise, in the gaps between what he's promised, then we pay attention to his character. We pay attention to his heart. We pay attention to who he is and his purposes in the life of men. We pray in alignment with the will of God. And we say, God, you haven't said anything specific to us about this particular brother or this particular sister, but will you heal her? Will you heal him? And then we wait to see whether that was God's desire or not. There are times in the life of an elder who's praying for the sick where we don't know until afterwards whether we were aligned with God's purposes or not. There are times afterwards where I find out, oh, that was a prayer of faith. But I am thankful and you should be thankful that God doesn't just willy-nilly answer every prayer that I pray because I'm fallible and so are you. We're broken and flawed. If God answered every prayer I prayed, I would wreck the world because I only know so much I only have so much power. I only have so much knowledge. I'm so limited that a lot of times what I think is best is actually not what would glorify God best at all. So I come to God in a spirit of what? Submission in all things. We said at the beginning that praying whether you're suffering or praying whether you're cheerful is a recognition that God's will is good, that he is sovereign and that we are submitted to him. When we come to him, we pray for a sick brother or sister, we anoint them with oil, right? There is a sense in which then, if God hasn't told us explicitly in advance, I'm going to heal this person, then we wait to see whether or not that was God's desire. And we can be confident that if that person goes on to get sicker or to die, that God had a good purpose in that. This is a true verse. We don't have to dance around it. We don't have to be scared of it. There is the opportunity for us to come to God in alignment with his heart in every circumstance. It says here in this last section, and we'll finish here this morning. In 19, it says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There's one last little thing in the midst of all that James has taught us that he wants to finish his book with. And it's this. There are times when we reach out to God and we say, will you help me in my suffering? Or I praise you in my joy. 
There are times when the sick will come or those who have unconfessed sin will come and say, will you pray for me? Because I need to be reconciled. I need to be restored. I need healing. There are times when we sort of recognize in ourselves that we need help and we go to prayer, right? Not only personally, but with one another. But there's another circumstance where someone wanders and they do not seek prayer. They're not looking for help. They've wandered away from the truth and they don't even recognize it themselves. Note here that it isn't just wandering away from our group of friends. It's not wandering away from our particular neighborhood church. It's not wandering away from our theology or wandering away from our political party or whatever else. It says if anyone wanders away from the truth, right? The truth is the stated and articulated will of God as we see in his word and more importantly in the person of Christ. If someone wanders away from the revealed will of God and the character of Christ, we absolutely, even though they haven't asked for prayer, even though they haven't asked for help, even though they haven't said, hey, I'm, I'm in real suffering or I'm, I, need, I need prayer, that person has a spiritual sickness and it is our responsibility as brothers and sisters to not just wash our hands of that person, to not just walk away. Sometimes it'd be easier to do that, wouldn't it? When someone becomes belligerent or someone becomes uh, involved in immorality or somebody's life starts to tank, we go, oh man, too much drama, too much trouble. That person made their own choices. They're being stupid. They're going to face the consequences of that. I I wash my hands of the whole situation. No, no, no. James is telling us if someone among you wanders from the truth, wanders from demonstrable faith, don't turn them loose. Go after him. Bring him back. He says, for anyone who brings him back, let him know, 20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, this brings up an interesting question. It says someone from among us, so someone that's part of the church body wanders away from the truth and we bring them back, we save their soul. Well, that's not possible, right? I mean, uh, it's not possible that a believer in Christ can lose their salvation. We know the Bible affirms that. We also know that it isn't possible for you and I as fellow brothers and sisters to save anyone's soul. That's something only Jesus does. So what's it saying? What it's saying is that there can be times where people who appear to be followers of Christ that are in the midst of our body, they sing the right songs, they put their hands in the air at the right time, they can quote all the right verses, they wander away from Christ. They wander away from the truth and they get sidetracked by things that are destructive and sinful. And it is our responsibility to go after them, whether they're a believer or not, because the truth is you and I can't tell the difference. I can't look into somebody's heart and know whether they've put their faith in Christ. I can't look into their heart and know whether or not they're redeemed. So when someone from among us wanders away, yeah, that might just be someone who's backslidden. It might just be someone who's decided to you know, turn their back on the truth. But it also could be someone who actually has never put their faith in Christ. And because I can't tell the difference, I got to go after everybody. I can never turn loose of someone who's wandered from the truth. I can never wash my hands of them. I can never unfriend them on Facebook or whatever. I'm not on Facebook, but... We, we can't turn our backs because we don't know whether that's someone who's just going through a moment of immorality or a moment of backsliding or a moment of sin or whether that's someone who's never put their faith in Christ at all. So we go after all of them, recognizing that they may be on the precipice of eternal separation from God. And we have the opportunity either to bring back somebody who's just wandering a little or someone who never knew the truth at all, but was camouflaged in the midst of the body. There's a call here, what? For prophetic engagement. This whole book we've been talking about demonstrable faith, that what you believe has to, be, has to be shown on the exterior. Put it out where people can see it and know what you believe in your impartiality and, and your controlled speech, in your patience and steadfastness and your alignment in prayer with the heart of Christ. This prayer of faith 
that trusts in the promises of God and trusts in God's goodness even when he hasn't given us explicit promise. But there is a call here not just for demonstrable faith, but for a prophetic engagement. A prophetic engagement that doesn't turn its back on wayward people, but reaches out to love them well. We're going to jump into a series in Daniel in two weeks. And Daniel, I think, articulates probably as well or better than any book in the Bible what prophetic engagement can actually look like and, and the change that can be wrought in a community when, when, when the people of God stand up for what's right. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would stir in us an alignment a righteousness, a rightness with Christ that avails us of a powerful kind of prayer we can't have when we're just praying for our own desires. When when we haven't paid attention to your heart, when we haven't paid attention to your word and your promise, and so we don't know it, and so we're just praying for the things we want. And as it says in James 4, we don't get those things because we prayed in selfishness, God. Would you help us to come to you humbly, in the valleys and on the mountaintops, recognizing that your will is good, that you are sovereign, and we are submitted to you in all things. And would you surprise us, God, as we pray in faith, would you surprise us in those moments where we find that our prayer is aligned with your ultimate purpose, even though you hadn't stated that in no uncertain terms? Would you help us to trust you in the moments where our prayer to you is different than your purpose? Would you help us to know and trust that you are good? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.